Good afternoon. I'm pleased to have no introduction. I'm Pittman McGee. I'll be your lecturer today. Um, this is a subject matter that uh, has been woven into the fabric of my adult life, uh, talking about religion, talking about it in its breadth and its depth and its um, superficiality. Um, as many of you know, I'm an Episcopal priest. I was ordained um, soon to be 30 years ago. Um, went to seminary at 22, was ordained when I was 25. I've been formed by the church and by religion in so many ways. Um, in 1991, I left the parish priesthood and did not leave the priesthood, but specialized my priesthood and took an additional six-year training course to uh, receive credentials and diploma as a Jungian analyst or a analytical psychologist. I'm now primarily in private practice as a psychoanalyst, though I do some teaching at U of H and I lecture about. Um, so my comments today are much more analytic than they are um, either evangelical or critical. That is to say that I'm very curious about the dynamic of the religious nature of human beings and how that's been acted out historically in institutional life as well as individual life. I have long been fascinated with um, the arcane for reasons that I suspect are a genetic defect rather than any, <laughs> anything else. I suspect because, and I say this only descriptively um, and, and sort of autobiographically, because I think it does have something to do with how I got to this podium today. When I was age six, um, I had a near-death experience. I was burned over half my body. And uh, from, from that time on, not literally, but uh, reflectively, I can see that it put me in position of uh, asking questions about meaning and purpose, asking questions about why uh, we are here and what it is that we're to do. It's sort of like some of you may have seen or read uh, the, the now popular uh, movie, Searching for Private Ryan. Um, it, as you know, saving, thank you. I guess salvation's a one of those repressed things in my psyche. <laughs> Saving Private Ryan. It plays even more to the point, doesn't it? In, in that movie, the premise is very simple and well known by now that, that soon after the Normandy invasion, um, the powers to be discovered that Private Ryan was one of several brothers and all the brothers had been killed save Private Ryan. And so they sent out a platoon to find him, and in so doing, several gave up their lives to save this private. Now that, at the end of the movie, it has Private Ryan as an old man, and he has his family around, and he is at the grave of the uh, captain who led the platoon to save him, and he's kneeling, and he says, sort of, um, not clearly whether it's to his family who've gathered or to um, the memory of the captain that saved him or to God or to the audience, but he says in a reflective, moving, poignant tone, he says, have I been a good enough man? And have I lived a good enough life? 
Well, those of us who have reached our ages, for one reason or another, have probably had the opportunity to make that reflection. And I, I guess among all, because in, in, in a way, uh, my near-death experience as a child has set me on a course to ask the question, have I lived a good enough life? Have I been a good enough man? And it seems to me that that might be a backdrop against which we begin to wonder about what is the function and purpose of religion after all. Now, I don't think the function and purpose of religion is to answer the question, have I been a good enough man? Have I lived a good enough life? I don't think religion answers that question. I think religion is about a resource that is available to us in order that we might answer that question for ourselves. I see religion as resource, and I think that the resource of religion is to do, as Joseph Campbell listed in his um, Power of Myth, where he talked about the four functions of myth. Now, I think to most of our ears today, thanks to Bill Moyers and to Joseph Campbell and C.G. Jung and others, we've recaptured the, the word myth, so we now understand what it meant originally, which simply means sacred story or mysterious story. Mythos uh, really uh, has to do with something that is of such truth that it requires a special container, and the sacred story is the container for that. And that, that these sacred stories that come about as a part of a religious fabric contain within them, Campbell said, four functions. The first function of the myth is to acquaint us with a sense of belonging, a sense of uh, that we have come from something. So that the sacred stories are generally stories about a people or a family or a tribe and that we have some sense that we are connected, rooted within that tribe and that those sacred stories of the evolution of that people have really brought us to this place and that we are a part of that. In Christianity, we have a doctrine known as the communion of saints in which we have the idea that we are connected to one another. A second function of, of myth that Campbell identified was developing a sense of awe uh, and uh, developing a cosmology. Now, a cosmology really is um, a, an explanation of how the cosmos came into being and something about how it is um, managed. The cosmology really is um, an attempt to bridge the gap between scientific discovery, that is what we know scientifically, versus what we imagine. And most of the myths that we've inherited are sort of pre-scientific and therefore don't necessarily today square with uh, scientific discovery. That creates what Campbell called the baby and bathwater problem. That is to say that the, the bathwater is the sacred story, the baby would be the truth, and that since the sacred story is out of date in terms of its cosmology, we throw it out and say it's not true. Post-age of reason, the word myth has become synonymous with something that's not true, when in fact, the origin of mythos was a special container for uh, a special kind of truth. And so with the advent of the age of reason, we are now 
not a people that's uh, been taught much to think symbolically or to live symbolically and indeed to understand the sacred stories. And so many um, have thrown the baby out with the bathwater in terms of these sacred stories. A fourth function, a third, excuse me, a third function of myth that Campbell identified was to establish a civilization or a code. And one of the functions of the myth was that, that somewhere within the creation story and the evolution of the tribe, that there would develop a code or a civilization. Now you remember, and this will be important later as we begin to try to analyze why so much of our contemporary religion has such stringent sort of uh, exclusivity and judgment within it. But the word civil really means straight lines and, and civil engineering is about drawing lines and so civilization is about having rules and codes that we need uh, boundaries and we need markers and norms for behavior and so the codal formulation of a particular tradition is really about answering the question, what is normative behavior for human beings in a civilization? And so that third function of myth uh, uh, sets up a, a kind of rule or code for behavior within the community. For better or for worse, I think many think that's the only function of religion, and that is to set up rules for behavior. The fourth function of myth that um, Campbell identified, and the one that I have spent most of my adult life uh, wondering about, is the function of what he called psychology. That basically the mythological formulations held within them the nature of being human, what it meant to be human or what human nature was about. So that if we study with a critical eye and ear the mythological formula, we begin to see that those stories really are about the nature of being human, what human beings are like. And, and within it we see the different ways in which human beings have imaged God or related to God. And if we study with even a more critical eye, we see in a kind of an evolutionary movement in the way human beings have either imaged God or related to God. In a book, uh, The New God Image, we find um, Edward Edinger uh, listing four or five of the evolutionary God images that we've had as um, uh, our um, culture, our civilization has evolved. And so it really, as we look at how human beings have viewed God, spoken about God, written about God, or imaged God, that that really finally says more about human beings than it says about God. For instance, in the earliest primitive development, one that I long for, one that I think uh, still exists within me as I uh, essentially I'm a simple and fairly primitive man, is the idea of animism. And the idea of anima, which means soul, animism means that everything has soul. So that the earliest primitive sort of God image was a kind of pantheism, a kind of understanding that the rocks and the trees and the animals all had soul. We find a lot of that formulation in, in Native American religion where uh, animals were brothers and sisters and earth was mother and father time and so we had a, a much more animated understanding of nature so that this animism was sort of the most primitive maybe the earliest God image was that there was some some world soul as it were and that world soul was found in all of nature uh, that that sort of formulation is now primarily left to the poets I think and that is the 
idea of this primitive mind. Primitive in my vocabulary is not a pejorative term, it's a descriptive term, maybe even a complementary term sometimes. I think primitives are much closer to the origin. Those of us who become more sophisticated and complex somehow forget uh, the simple things from which we've come. Uh, much like the Wordsworth poem of, of life is a forgetting and we long for that that we have forgotten. That's an important uh, concept to me, one I'd like to develop, but we must move. In our understanding then of the evolution of God, we came to a, a, a kind of uh, uh, matriarchical understanding uh, where we had much more of a goddess period of development, one that's been primarily lost except for anthropologists. We don't hear much about the goddess period uh, within contemporary religion, for instance, though if you've uh, sat in a pew or read a newspaper in the last uh, five or six years, you'll see that, that there, there are those who are very interested in reclaiming the feminine nature of God. There are certain traditions, um, as you may have heard or read, that now ordain women to the priesthood, and um, that, that seems to be a, a different, and uh, for some, it seems to be uh, against tradition. For others, it seems to be prophetic nonetheless. The idea is being recaptured that, that what happened to the feminine nature of God, we find it with a critical eye sort of enfolded in, in the scriptures of uh, the Hebrews and the Christians, but primarily uh, we've lost that goddess idea and there was a time uh, that a lot of the mythological formulations had a consort for God or had as a, a goddess image and, and many of the world religions today do still, particularly Hinduism and have a much more prominent place for the feminine or for the goddess. Now then the movement was to a kind of hierarchical polytheism that we'll find in the Greek uh, pantheon uh, where you have uh, many gods and some kind of hierarchical relationship. Uh, then we have a, a sort of tribal monotheism that evolves. Now all this sounds sort of like fancy religious terms but in simple uh, understanding what we're trying to develop very, very cursorily, and I apologize for that, is the idea that the God image, whatever one you hold as your prominent God image, is not the only one that's ever been. Um, and, and so that there are many God images and that there was a time when we had what, what's known as a, as a tribal monotheism, which would be the Hebrew people, who had one God, and that God was the God of this chosen people. And then you have what we find much more in Christianity, which is a universal monotheism. And Christianity, in its Catholic formulation, Catholic meaning universal, began to say that this God, this Yahweh, or the God of what we call the Old Testament, um, that this God was not just for the Hebrews, that this God was for all human beings, and that the, the great dream that Peter had in the Acts of the Apostles, where he dreamt of this great blanket coming down from heaven with clean and unclean animals, there was a time that the gospel or the religion or the God image became universal so that this was not just a God of the Hebrews but a God for all men and women at all times and all places. Now this is an evolutionary understanding. Monotheism has changed uh, primarily uh, through <clears throat> evolution from uh, a polytheistic adversarial relationship with God so that 
mortals were in sort of an adversarial relationship with the gods, and so there was always this competitiveness between gods and mortals. And so our job was to appease the gods and not anger them so that they wouldn't punish us. Remember the one thing that gods could not abide was human hubris and, and the inflation or the idea in any human being that they knew or had any, any power of the gods. That's the Promethean problem, if you remember. Prometheus stole the fire and was uh, severely punished daily for that. Now, the reason I'm just recounting those five or six is because we now uh, are heirs to another sort of evolutionary idea in the God image, and that is a subjective God image. Up to this time, and uh, we could probably begin to date it around the age of reason or enlightenment and, and, and romantic movement and the Renaissance and all that great period, somewhere in the 16th century, when human subjectivity be began to evolve and the idea for the subsequent years that each individual might have her own God image. And so this is a relatively new image of God uh, and it one, one that causes great difficulty when we begin to talk about uh, universal religions. Now, um, having said all of that, I, I want to, to make a huge point that religion as we understand it is a dynamic. It has always been a dynamic. It is ever-changing. I think even the most conservative part of each of us would have to admit that religion is a dynamic organism, that it has never been static. Uh, I would would and much more familiar, of course, with Judeo-Christian religion in terms of its evolution, and it's been a very dy dramatically dynamic religion in terms of its change. Um, its worldview has been dynamic. Uh, you realize that poor Copernicus came up with a novel idea and was uh, severely punished for that idea. Um, and, and so we have time and time again changed our worldview as the collective consciousness has evolved uh, the, the church or the religion uh, has had to change its worldview fairly dramatically and, and to illustrate the dynamism of, of religion. So when I lecture today about religion and particularly American Christianity about which I'm most familiar, we've got to have this huge backdrop for understanding that the religion that we know or have inherited or have experienced uh, is not the only religion or the only way that we've ever understood religion or Christianity in particular, and it is currently in a very dynamic period. The dynamism has come with this problem of subjectivity. When I was in seminary, I was taught the norms of doing theology were scripture, tradition, and reason. That any time one tried to come to the solution of a theological problem or to come up with theological doctrine or premise that there were three norms for doing theology. The first was scripture. You always went to the scripture to see what the, his, the people uh, at the time that the scripture was written, what was their experience? The second was tradition, that is how has this scripture and this experience of the original community, how has this traditionally been interpreted? And we got lots of problems with tradition, which we could uh, hold another 
a whole lecture on and the idea that we tend to think that that tradition means that it's the way it's supposed to be done. Tradition really means that this is the way it has traditionally been interpreted and we know on such things as baptism uh, it's been interpreted many ways and there isn't just one tradition even within Christianity about baptism. Uh, marriage, the institution that you and I I now experience and understand is, is not the same uh, institution that's always been in Christianity so that there's been a dynamic within tradition. Reason being how we take scripture and tradition and we understand it rationally. Well there's been a fourth leg added to that three-legged stool of norms for doing theology and the fourth leg is now experience, personal experience, subjective experience. There's a Sufi saying that says the only God is a God of experience. Now the idea that I, as a subject, as an individual, can come up with my own God image based on my own experience is relatively new. And it creates uh, fits for institutional religion, and it creates fits for uh, tradition. Uh, now, having said all of that, let me move to a different understanding of American Christianity in particular, and uh, some of the reason why we um, have an American Christianity and it, its peculiarities and then I'll move to um, the an understanding of the uh, religious nature of the psyche and begin to look at what we might conclude uh, religion is to be about in the main. Um, Western Christianity has been greatly influenced by several movements, primarily by the work of Augustine and St. Thomas of Aquinas, by the Protestant Reformation, and by the Puritan movement. Now, Augustine uh, is, a, is a saint and uh, wrote in terms of the city of God some very profound uh, things that I think have been um, very important in the evolution of religious consciousness. But many of the things that he, that he wrote influenced very dramatically Western Christianity, which is what American Christianity is, is the child of. And, and one of the things that he felt very strongly is that there was an original sin. Now, most of us think that original sin is a biblical concept that comes from the book of Genesis with the uh, disobedience of Adam and Eve in the garden and the expulsion from the garden uh, as a punishment for their disobedience. That has a familiar ring, doesn't it, in terms of this hierarchical polytheism where gods punish the humans for their inflation. Uh, so we see within that story, within the flood story, within the Tower of Babel, sort of that tradition where the punitive God punishes human beings when they presume uh, to have a hubris or an inflated view. And so Augustine took the story of the book of Genesis and fashioned his concept of original sin. And the concept of original sin, uh, in spite of the sort of puritanical view that we take, really has nothing to do with human sexuality. The original sin, according to um, Augustine is disobedience. And uh, in that creation story, you remember very clearly that, that God was establishing 
with human beings um, that he was God and they weren't and that there were certain things they couldn't know. And uh, so they were beguiled by the serpent that they could know uh, the uh, origin of good and evil if they wanted to and he gave them the opportunity and the feminine voice said yes and so we were off and running out of the garden. And so the idea of original sin is, is bedrock part of Western Christianity and, and uh, a, uh, an assumed influence in each of our lives if we've grown up in this country, particularly if we've um, been in Christian institutions. A second thing that Augustine um, began to fashion was the idea that nature was an adversary to human relationship with God. So that our nature must be overcome in order for us to be able to connect or relate to God. And he was particularly interested in our instincts and appetites as being things that kept us from God. And so the Augustinian Christianity, which has been greatly influenced, uh, uh, greatly influenced us, has this idea that nature is something that must be overcome, that our appetites and our instincts, particularly around um, those seven deadly sins that we have, um, that, that we are to rise above that. And we find that in that wonderful line from Audrey Hepburn, in, uh, from, yeah, from Catherine Hepburn in um, with Humphrey Bogart and the African Queen, where Bogart says, well, ma'am, it's only natural. And she said, nature, my good man, is what we're put on earth to rise above. Uh, that's a sort of Augustinian uh, idea that nature is bad and we're, we're to rise above our own natural instincts. And that idea uh, put in Western Christianity was at the basis of monasticism. That the idea of uh, chastity, poverty, and obedience is about sex, power, and money. And so sex, power, and money are things that we are to overcome, uh, those desires for uh, such things. And so original sin woven into the nature of being human and we're to overcome human nature and that God in Christ has attempted to, to uh, compensate for uh, our sel selfish disobedience and for our nature. Now those are very influential in terms of why we have uh, such um, a religion that has uh, traditionally uh, in its view of human nature been fairly judgmental. Now a, a second strain, Augustine here, and any patristic scholar or, or church historian or Augustinian scholar would might be critical of my cursory view of, of St. Augustine, but it's only uh, just a, a paragraph within a long lecture. I, I would hold that what I've said is accurate. Now, a second big influence on American Christianity, which is what we're here to sort of analyze today, a second big influence is the Protestant Reformation. Now, it was an important and necessary uh, change in the church uh, most of you from high school through college have read about Luther and the Reformation and then um, the other um, spread of the reformers, particularly with Zwingli and Calvin. And the Protestant Reformation really came from Calvin much more than from Luther. 
Calvin was wrestling with the question, why is it that some people accept Christianity or Christ and some don't? And so he began to wrestle with this enigmatic doctrine that he entitled predestination. Now it's, um, it's not predestination, it's not a doctrine that's very easily understood, and particularly the popularized view is that, it, that everything that happens to us was predestined. That's an amplification of the doctrine that is fairly inaccurate. What he was wrestling with was why some people accepted Christ and some didn't. And he said that they must be predestined to do so. Now, um, the question came to Calvin then, well, how do we know who was predestined, and how do we know who the elect are, who have been elected? So he went to the scripture and he said, by their fruits you shall know them. Well, with this, just a baby step of an amplification, you can see that fruits have to do with produce, and so it's by their production you shall know them. And so this idea that the Protestant ethic, which has to do with production or showing our brothers and sisters that we have been, uh, that w we can produce fruits, really began um, uh, the, the Western Industrial Revolution and the whole Protestant ethic. So that the whole idea of hard work and obedience is a very much a part of American Christianity, very much a part of, of American culture. Now the last, uh, th that, that also creates another sort of um, influence upon American Christianity, which is an, an ancient heresy called Pelagianism. And Pelagius believed that you really, that, that this idea of, of grace or love from God, he was not willing to give up on the fact that we had to do something to earn it. That it was not simply a free gift, that, that Pelagian believed that we had to work or we had to earn God's love. And Pelagius was, uh, was um, declared a heretic, that no, that it's uh, pure, unbounded, unilateral, unconditional love on God's part, and that's the grace. We do not earn it, we cannot deserve it. But Pelagius, uh, somehow, his doctrine stayed alive through the Protestant Reformation and through the Protestant ethic, so that it is within American Christianity that that we still believe that uh, if we work hard and follow the rules that we will be rewarded. And so this Pelagian idea is that we must work in order to earn God love, God's love is still a big part of American Christianity. Or at least it was in Oklahoma. I suspect <laughs> it was in Texas. The last influence that, uh, that I will name as we begin to think about why American Christianity has had uh, such um, a negative influence on so many is, is Puritanism. And Puritanism is once again a, a long involved understanding of the evolution of Puritanism, but there were so many Puritans who left England and immigrated to this country, and so so much of our American, early American Christianity was greatly influenced by Puritanism. And Puritanism, uh, as you remember, is the idea that somebody out there might be having a good time. Uh, Puritanism really is uh, sort of hand in glove along with the Protestant ethic of hard work and Pelagianism and the Puritan idea um, that um, 
we that play and the basic instincts, uh, picking up on Augustine's or Augustine's idea of, of original sin and transcending our own human nature, that the Puritans really felt that hard work and rigid adherence to the law uh, were uh, uh, necessary in order to enter the kingdom of heaven. So we have St. Augustine and Western Augustinian Christianity. If you want to read a real readable book about that, read How the Irish Saved Civilization by Tom Cahill. It's a wonderful book on how when two streams of Christianity came together, one the Celtic stream and the other Augustinian Christianity coming from Rome, that when they got to England there was a clash and, and at the Council of Whitby they, they were arguing over when to date Easter and the Roman Catholic uh, uh, tradition won, and so it became the predominant influence uh, in, in th this country, essentially through England. Uh, so Celtic Christianity, which was much more uh, feminine, had much more of a celebration of life, it had uh, much more a, a playful atmosphere, a lot more mystery uh, than, uh, than Roman Catholic influence had. And, and it was uh, lessened in its influence. So we have Augustine, we have uh, Protestant ethic, we have uh, Pelagianism, and we have Puritanism that have dramatically affected uh, why American Christianity in, in its uh, negative form evolved. Now if we can keep these sort of pots simmering, the idea that, that religion and, and the God image is dynamic, and trying to analyze uh, what were the influences that brought American Christianity to its kind of collective consciousness. Let's add just another pot over here, and that is a, a understanding of psychology. Now, one of the many theories that uh, C.G. Jung brought to psychology was the idea that there is a collective unconscious. That is to say that there is a personal consciousness, there's a personal unconscious, but there is a deep level of what he called the collective unconscious that's the same for all of us. And that the contents of the collective unconscious are made up of archetypes. And these archetypes are ancient imprints uh, that, have, uh, that are part of each of us. These are to the psyche as instincts are to the soma. That these are sort of predisposed patterns of human behavior. They are the residue of eons of human experience. That the archetypes really are, are deep yearnings and longings. They're, they're certain things that human beings have in, in each of us and in all of us that are, that are in common and are collective. Now two of the primary archetypes are so obvious that we all know these things, we just maybe have not seen them in this particular theoretical explanation, but two of the great archetypes are mother and father. And, and that each of us must have an experience with a mother and each of us is driven or we long or are called into a relationship with a father. So these mother archetypes and father archetypes are what we would see in mythological formulation as the great mother and the great father. And that if each of us individually is driven toward the experience of mother and that our whole sort of uh, life is uh, begun and influenced by our relationship with a, with a biological mother, 
that we essentially have three kinds of mothers. That is our mother archetype, our great mother, our desire for a mother. We have an experience with mother, that's the biological mother. And then we have a part of our psyche that we take with us that was developed in that relationship with mother. It's called a complex, so that we have a mother complex. And we know that this uh, desire for mother is very strong in human beings and that it is collective. If there's a collective unconscious, there is a collective consciousness. And so that this desire for mother is in the collective and so that we see uh, that, that the aspects of the mother archetype that, that are desired have to do uh, with nurture and connectedness, with love, with support, uh, with security. So that we, we project onto uh, collective organizations the mother archetype. And that's why we have these feminine uh, sort of descriptions like uh, Ma Bell. We expect that an institution, you see, will provide for us some nurture and security and, and safety. Even more to the point, we talk about alma mater, that is, our mother. So that an alma mater presumes that institution called education is a mother. And she nurtures us and she prepares us and she gives us some sense of security. Now, you all are intuitive and know where I'm going. We also talk about Mother Church. The church is our mother. Now, one of the difficulties that we've been under in terms of the evolution of the God image, the evolution of a particular kind of consciousness in this Augustinian view, and, and why we have the kind of emphasis in American Christianity that we've had is because that the predominant archetypal um, influence upon all of, of uh, Western civilization has been the father archetype. Now, if the mother is to connect and relate and, and nurture and provide security, the father is to provide order. The father is to provide um, the, the rules and order for uh, civilization and for the family. That the father, uh, really, traditionally, the patriarchy has developed a hierarchy, and a hierarchy really is this idea that there is a kind of, of hierarchy of authority. So that the for most of the centuries that have influenced the Judeo-Christian religion, the ruling archetype has been paternal, has been the father archetype. And that's known as the patriarchy. And so we have been in a long period of what's been called patriarchical leadership. That we find even within the, um, the, the idea of the Old Testament of being given dominion is the idea that the father archetype or the masculine archetype has been given charge over nature. And so, you know, the question is, have we been good husbands to nature? Have we been good, uh, in, in being given dominion, have, have we been good stewards or have we dominated? And that's, that's the question that, that you have to answer for yourself. But in terms of God image, uh, the predominant God image that's been influential in America has been the Father God. 
And the Father God has been uh, primarily been Yahweh of the Old Testament. And, and one of the things that is most difficult for us to make in terms of our distinction, and the place at which uh, this kind of uh, analysis is most vulnerable to criticism, is the confusion between the God image and God. <clears throat> that when we begin to talk about the God image, we begin to get defensive that he's talking about my God or our God, when I'm really trying to do an analysis of the God image that we've inherited, which may or may not have to do very much with God. Uh, I was uh, in a, a seminar at U of H this weekend with Houston Smith. Some of you may have seen Houston Smith in the World Religion series that Bill Moyers did. And Houston Smith was talking about how science and religion have been in this sort of dance and war for so long, and he thinks there's a light at the end of the tunnel about the remarriage of science and religion. And he's saying that physicists today probably will, will, will make, be making the greatest contributions to sort of the reunion of science and religion because he said most physicists now believe that there is a, a resource outside the time and space box that's responsible for time and space. So that beyond time and space, yes, there is some, some kind of source to the mystery of the universe, much as, as we theologians have believed all along. Now, the, the, the point I'm trying to make is if we can separate God, and that's such a political term these days, but if we could separate the source of the mystery of the universe, the primary uh, spark, uh, the ground of being, however you want to refer to the creator, let's separate that for a minute and say, yes, there is a God, and McGee, he's not an atheist, and, um, you know, the, the, what I'm talking about in terms of this analysis is not even criticism, it is just simply analysis. And that the God that we have inherited is the God image of the patriarchal father. That we grew up with a father God, that Yahweh was God our father, all of our prayers have been to God our father, and we have this kind of um, uh, hierarchical view of God that there's a hell below the earth, there's earth, there's a heaven above the earth, and God sits on a throne as king above all uh, of the world. And so it's logical because if this has been a predominant patriarchal period in human history that the God would be a patriarch or that God would be a father. As uh, several of the uh, theologians have said, when, when man is God, God is man. So God has been a man, has been a father. Now, the, the father archetype, as we understand it in the collective, that the father archetype creates uh, a sort of weaning of the child from the mother and establishes for the child a sense of competence in the world and a sense of confidence and is the, is the one that's responsible for teaching the rule. And so much of American Christianity has been rule-centered. It has been a patriarchal religion that's been very influenced by hard work, Puritan influence, overcoming our nature, and, and a, a kind of authoritarian, punitive view uh, about rules. So that uh, as a little boy in Oklahoma,
So that uh, as a little boy in Oklahoma growing up, uh, my view of God was sort of a um, primitive and appropriately complex but confusing combination of um, Uncle Sam and Santa Claus. Um, that the God of my youth was was Uncle Sam who knew what was best for me and that was to set the rules for civilization and that if I broke the rules was going to punish me. But I had sort of this other side of God which I got in those little cracked basement uh, Sunday school rooms I attended at that little church in that little town in Oklahoma where we would sing hymns like red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in his sight, Jesus loves the little children of the world, and that Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And so I've got this sort of uh, more nurturing, loving view of God that many times was at contrast with this sort of punity father God. So I had a, a kind of confusion. But even with Santa Claus, who, who gave me gifts that I didn't deserve, as we said in our family, we always believed in Santa Claus because I knew my father couldn't afford those presents that were under the tree. Um, that, that there was this kind of sense of uh, Santa Claus who, who brought us this undeserved favor, and yet at the same time, the culture told me that I'd better not pout and I'd better not cry because if I wasn't good, I wouldn't get the presents. Now, what I'm postulating is that, that I have grown up in a culture and in, a, in an American Christianity that has been terribly shaming, judgmental, and punitive. Now there is an, evidently an appropriate place for that in our civilization, that, that evidently the father archetype, and I say evidently, I'm convinced of the importance of the father archetype. And that it does create civilization, and it does create right and wrong, and it does create for us norms of behavior that are very important very important to civilization and its evolution. Without uh, those sort of rules and boundaries, uh, maybe none of us would be alive. And yet at the same time, there was a heresy in the early centuries of the church by a man named Marcion. And the Marcion heresy was, look, this God of the New Testament is so different from the God of the Old Testament, these are two different gods. They're not even the same gods. and they. And declared Marcion a heretic because that they were saying, no, this is the same God. And so we get the idea in Christianity of, of, of this um, itinerant rabbi who goes around teaching uh, that, that the religion uh, of his time had become corrupt and judgmental and punitive and that, 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 that truly God was a God of love and that the only law now was the law of love. And so we've had this sort of mixed uh, understanding within Christianity and, and some would say appropriate tension between uh, justice and mercy, between law and love. Well, I'm, um, as, as priest and analyst, um, I'm saying that that probably doesn't have as much to do with religion as it has to do with culture. That cultures, whether they, they are Christian or not, 
have that same struggle between justice and mercy. That even communism had the trouble between justice and mercy. That the problem of the relationship between the individual and the state, or between the subject and the collective, is not just a religious problem. That's not what, what religion was brought into being uh, to solve. That that's just always going to be a problem. And we, of course, seek tension and balance between law and love, between the collective and the individual. And if we read uh, Christianity with a particular kind of critical eye, we get the view that Jesus was teaching that the individual was more important than the collective, that, that, what, that, that the, the human beings uh, were prior to the law, and that uh, the Sabbath was made for us, that we weren't made for the Sabbath. And that and this, so that with the beginning of Christianity and and some believe around the 16th century, this subjectivity and the evolution of human consciousness as we separate from the tribe, that we've, we've got a problem uh, in culture always between um, what the culture tells me that are norms for behavior and what my own uh, truth is. Um, there was an organization during the Vietnam crisis called the Cross and the Flag in which it was helping counsel people about uh, what, what, when your religion goes against your country, what do you do? And um, the idea, of course, was about conscription for the Vietnam War, and if somebody didn't believe in that war, did they have to go serve? And the question for many was between the cross, which I believe says one thing, versus the flag, and my country says another thing. So. What I'm trying to say today is, as far as I'm concerned, as a priest and, and as, a, as a psychoanalyst, I don't think that's the religious issue. And that's where we seem to want to uh, have the big battles over religious issue, is between the individual and the culture. And I can say, if we had a religionless culture, we'd have that issue. What I think religion's about, one man's opinion, one man who's studied this for a long time, and I think that's a misunderstanding. I think we saddle the wrong horse when we all argue about uh, whether uh, religion, wh whether we're Christian or whether we're religious, uh, and if we don't follow a particular set of rules. There's a whole other factor for a whole other lecture about pluralism and what it's doing to us in this country and in this world um, in terms of the law, because pluralism has created great confusion for us about which law and whose law. Now, what I think Christianity or religion is about is really um, in the etymological root of the word. That is, Campbell talked about the four functions of myth, that one of them was, the, was about codes, but I think today, and, and why I do what I do the way I do it, is that I really think religion at its root was uh, developed because human beings are religious at our nature. And religion in this sense comes from the root religio, which, which really comes from a, from a deeper root, which is ligare, L-I-G-E-R-E. And the word ligare means to bind up or to connect. It's the same root from which we get the word ligament. And ligament, of course, needs, means to connect two things. So re-ligare means to reconnect. The presumption is that something has been disconnected or estranged or separated. So the religious nature of the psyche is to heal. 
the religious nature of the psyche is to, to put those things back together that have been separated, that we are separated from ourselves, uh, we're separated from others, we're separated from God, so that the religious function is about a relationship, that re-ligare is about reunion, it's about putting those things back together that have been estranged or separated or alienated. So whether we're talking about religion as a as a community issue, or whether we're talking about religion as an interpersonal issue, or religion as an intrapsychic psychological issue, we're really talking about healing. We're talking about connecting those things that have been separated, uh, reconnecting those things that have been alienated, uh, rebinding those things that have been estranged. The second word that we use so much and hear so much about is salvation, and that comes from the root salvo, which is the same word, we get the word salve, which really means to heal. So salvation is about healing. Now why is it that, that uh, we have had such a, uh, in many cases for many of us, such a judgmental and shaming experience with Christianity? And I posit it's because that a large part of American Christianity was influenced by this kind of negative father archetype. And the negative father basically is saying, if you follow the rules, you can stay in the house. If you break the rules, you're kicked out. Uncle Sam said, America, love it or leave it, in that kind of stern, finger-pointing way. And that uh, the church has been sort of dominated, all denominations, um, have been sort of dominated by this masculine hierarchical idea and that the judgment and shame is very much a part of uh, what the voice, the negative side of that voice uh, is. And so that for everything that we've gained in terms of what the, that, that father spirit does in terms of ordering and, and creating technological and scientific things, We've lost a lot in terms of the healing function of, of the religion. Now, I think both are there, but my um, uh, emphasis in terms of being priest and being analyst probably has, uh, that my bio biographical experience probably has more to do with why I'm lecturing and teaching and preaching the way I do than anything else, because there is the old myth of the wounded healer and that is the idea that the gods wounded certain human beings in order to make them healers, and I was wounded as a small child. So if you wonder why that I have such more of an emphasis in the healing nature of religion and Christianity, it's because healing is my vocation, that, that putting things back together in terms of the human psyche and where people have been separated from themselves and shamed, and when they've been made to feel as though they are inadequate and unworthy, then it seems to me that, that my job or the job of religion is really the opposite of that, and is to say that people are um, delighted in and that they have a right to be and that there are no God-forsaken places or God-forsaken people. And I think that's why I'm a clinician these days more than a hierarchical authority. Uh, given the choice about whether to become a church bureaucrat and to, to continue uh, sort of uh, in that hierarchical, uh, bureaucratic, authoritarian power uh, side of a vocation that I decided I wanted to 
emphasize the pastoral and the healing side, and so I specialized rather than going farther in the institution. Because that's my emphasis. But I would also, because I think that's what I, I'm supposed to do, but, but I also want to say that I believe that we have lost in the main uh, the healing possibility of our religious tradition. Uh, Jung said that he never saw a person in his office that didn't, at the basis of his problem, have a religious issue. And that the sacramental life of the church with confession, with baptism, with holy matrimony, uh, with, uh, with uh, unction, that, that the church really had within its tradition the highest value for healing. He says in a, in a very particular paper he wrote that he believed that religion was to be a psychotherapeutic system. Now, I have a self-selected group of people who come and talk to me. That is to say that the kind of people who come and talk to me are a particular uh, part of our culture. But many, many, many of the people who come and talk to me have um, been wounded by religion. They've been shamed, they've been excluded, they've been condemned or judged by their religion. Um, and the religion of their parents. And that in a kind of, not literally, but figuratively, homeopathic view, it's almost as if the only thing that will heal that is the thing that created that. So that, that I think for many of us that there is and needs to be much more within uh, religion uh, the idea of grace, which we've really never fully understood, we most of us are Pelagians, which doesn't make any sense. Uh, it's not good economic theory. Uh, the idea that the people who work one hour get paid the same as those who work all day, which is the parable of Jesus, doesn't make good economic theory. Uh, that healing and, and uh, love are, are not terribly efficient. That is to say, it takes a long time and it takes a lot of effort and you don't produce anything. I have uh, a lot of uh, my friends, you know, who are um, not in the healing arts, um, laugh about McGee over there navel-gazing and holding people's hands. Well, you know, I don't produce anything. I'm, I'm not, got a bottom line, uh, it's not very efficient, it, it, it's not terribly productive, uh, and so it's not greatly valued in this culture. As a matter of fact, uh, religious and ordained people have been fairly marginalized in this culture because they deal with the immaterial and the irrelevant and the irrational. Now, I like to talk about the non-material may be as important as the material, that the non-rational may be as important as the rational, and that um, the invisible may be as important as the visible. And so American Christianity, unfortunately, I think, has overemphasized one function in culture that traditionally religion held, and that was for the creation and enforcement of rules. 
and that much more what Christianity is about in terms of its own healing art is about forgiveness, it's about redemption, it's about reconciliation, it's about inclusiveness, uh, it's about reconnecting, about reunion, about healing and transformation, it's about hope, and it's about love. Houston Smith says that of all the world's great religions, Christianity is the one that talks about a God of love. And yet, in the history of our religion, uh, what kind of commentary on that God of love has Christianity written? It's almost as if uh, we have become the opposite, and that is that we have this wonderful God of love that is so important that if you don't accept it, we condemn you. Well, I've uh, spoken for an hour. Um, I've dedicated the last 30 minutes to dialogue. I think I've learned more in my lecturing by listening during the questions than, than I have by listening to me. Um, a, a lot of questions can't be answered, and so I'll just make response to them. Um, and, and some of you may even want to make response to what I've said. So let's spend the last 30 minutes talking together. What, what have I stimulated? Yes, please. The press, Dr. McGee, yeah. has talked a lot about religion and mm -hmm. has, was not a very uh, good uh, stance on it. It right. has really criticized religion a great deal and, and separated a great many people because of it has been so hard. What it's talking about largely, I think, about fundamentalism, yes. which is probably that very thing you're talking about, the dogmatism, the yeah. Ten Commandments, yeah. Uh, yeah. exclusiveness and so forth, mm -hmm. judgment. Yeah, I, the uh, my response to that is I think that's that's correct, and um, I don't want. I think the argument between uh, branches of uh, liberal or conservative Christianity are, are not particularly helpful, or the judgment. I mean, it, 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 we just become that which we detest, um, and I think that there, there's fundamentalism in everything. I mean, there's the scientific fundamentalism is maybe the most destructive thing going on today, <laughs> with the idea that that the, that the scientific method is the only way to approach truth. The truth is only found in the scientific method. That scientific fundamentalism, I think, is very exclusive, very judgmental, and, and brands everything irrelevant that can't be proven. So fundamentalism, by its very nature, is an ism. And so I think that's the problem, and it's in the human being, because there's fundamentalism in Islam and in, in, in uh, Judaism, and so, you know, fundamentalism is the, fundamentally the problem, not just Christian fundamentalism. And so, um, and I even have a fundamentalism in me, and that is to say that, that once I, I don't, my, my ego and my consciousness doesn't particularly like change. It doesn't like surprise. It doesn't like the unknown. And so once I get something set, you know, I don't want it to change. You can ask my wife about our furniture and, you know, that kind of So that, that's a part of each of us. But I would say, yes, now, having given all that disclaimer, that I really am talking about the kind of uh, uh, fundamentalism that, that has been a big part of American Christianity that has been predominantly responsible, I think, for wounding many people. And... Um, that it that much of fundamentalist Christianity really is not Christianity, but it is authoritarian, and so that that would be my response. Yeah. Uh -huh. Somebody else, talk with me. 
Yeah. Yeah. Eternal. Yeah, right. Yeah. Well, well, it's it's easier to learn than relearn, isn't it? I've told this story many times. Uh, I did grow up in this little town in Oklahoma. Drumright. Oh yeah, well, I grew up in Drumright, which is 30 miles from Tulsa, it's northern Oklahoma. I went to Oklahoma State. Um, I'm the only union analyst out of Drumright, Oklahoma. <laughs> One of the few college graduates I was. I had a friend that uh, lived on uh, the Sinclair oil lease, and uh, I used to like to go out there and spend the night because it was near the woods and near the streams, and we'd fish and hunt and play. And I was in about the sixth grade. And his folks were uh, um, kind of fundamentalist. And so in order for me to spend the night, I had to go to a revival with him. And I was in the sixth grade, and the revivalist um, threatened me with the same thing, and that was that if you don't accept Christ your personal Lord and Savior tonight, um, then you may die. And if you do die and haven't accepted Christ, then you go to hell and you burn unquenchable fire, I remember. That's the eternal fire. Yeah, great groaning, weeping, and gnashing of teeth, yeah. He even uh, stirred up, this was in the 50s, and the polio scare was great, that he'd been in a neighboring town during a revival, and there was a boy that everybody wanted to accept Christ, he didn't do it, and he got polio. So, um, you know, those were fairly memorable. <laughs> So yeah, I think many of us have grown up with that, and and I, um, I think there are much more subtle forms of that that go on, that that are maybe more insidious, um, with the idea that you see our problem finally comes down to authority. Maybe the history of the Christian Church can be written around the problem of authority. Uh, maybe that maybe history can be written around the problem of authority, and that is, who's in charge? Who decides? Now, one of the things about um, religion is that it has traditionally in this culture, though that's eroded greatly, as all authorities eroded in this culture, that uh, much as like I have somebody who does my taxes and practices law for me and is my doctor and my banker and we abdicate those things and so we've abdicated to the ordained to sort of tell us what the rules are and, and who's in charge and you know and um, so that that authoritarian idea of I will tell you now the problem with fundamentalism in terms of a dialogue with fundamentalism is it's a circular argument and that is that the only authority is the Bible. Well, how do you know that? Well, the Bible says so. Well, that's a, that's a circular argument you can't get in. Um, and as, as you must know, uh, the scriptures are 
very complicated in terms of their evolution and their literary style. And so many times we've had unsophisticated, uneducated people who were the authorities over and custodians of that word and have you know, gone to little towns in Oklahoma and misrepresented that, that tradition grossly. Uh, and so I'm, I'm not so sure that uh, much of what we hear as the gospel or our religion uh, from the authorities really is the kernel of the truth. And I'm one of those authorities. I mean, I'm a priest. Uh, the problem we have with authority always, and, and whether we're talking about religion or culture, is that autonomy and anarchy are, you know, very close together. And so once we become autonomous in choosing what it is that we are to believe as we peruse the scripture or as we experience God, uh, then authorities or civilization gets very scared when there's autonomy because right around the corner is anarchy. And so we've always got this tension. And so the question is, where's the authority? And the thing I was trying to posit in what's changed is that a lot of people are beginning to say subjectively, I must take responsibility and authority for my own understanding of this. And that's very threatening to the institution. Because uh, as I preach time and time again, sort of tongue in cheek, but with a grain of truth, if the gospel was ever preached, the churches would be empty. Uh, you know we'd be free. <laughs> uh, the, the other reason is that if it was every preach, people wouldn't come back because it would just be too threatening. You know, God loves everybody equally. It's pretty threatening to most of us. Yes? Yeah. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. Some think I do. Yes? You have to say one thing for the Ten Commandments. They are authoritative. Yeah. But they're so nice and specific. There are so many things yeah. tell you exactly what to do and what don't do. I want you to leave here today and say that Pittman McGee is for the Ten Commandments. <laughs> <laughs> um, I. I don't want to live in a culture that doesn't have law. I don't want to live in a culture that doesn't have norms for human behavior. I don't want to live in a culture that, that doesn't make it you know, fairly clear about what the limits and, uh, of behavior and boundaries. I, I, that I'm oft accused of, of saying that the law isn't important. I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying that, that in certain situations and subjectivity, I have had to choose uh, to go with what, what my truth was at that moment against what might have been the law, whether it was the Vietnam War or the fact, uh, the example I give that's less threatening to audiences, is that uh, I, my kids uh, tease me about my conservatism, both the way I dress and a lot of my educational ideas. 
a lot of my ritual processes, the way I drive, you know, <laughs> the way I do my money, what little I have, I don't care about it. Um, and so I, that, I drive slowly and I always stop at 